Okay, if you've got a Bible, could you please turn to the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 8. Have you ever heard the, the um, expression, uh, be sure that your sins will find you out? Um, well, I, I was preaching in Telford last week uh, for Giles Higgins, and uh, in the process of preaching, I gave an illustration uh, from a, my very first church meeting when I was 14. So you can work it out, it's over 40 years ago. And so I gave this illustration out uh, with great passion and gusto and memory and all that sort of stuff. And uh, a couple came to me afterwards and they said, do you know who I am? And I went, no, I haven't got a clue. And he said, stare at the face. It's worse that, isn't it, when they do that, stare at the face. No, still haven't got it. He said, well... uh, We were, at the time of that church meeting, we were 24 and 23. We were in that church meeting. It's a good job you told the truth. (laughs) They were there. It was a bit weird. And I I didn't even know who they were. They were obviously 10 years plus older than older than me, but it's a scary one, isn't it, for preachers? Tell the truth in your illustrations or your sins will find you out. Okay, we're going to look at the spirit of adoption, and to do that, you're going to need to turn to Romans chapter 8 and verses 12 to 17. I've nicked a bit, and I hope that I won't spend too much time, from Phil's passage, because I just needed to do that as, a, as an introduction to it, because it overlaps. So Romans chapter 8 and verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided (laughs) we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So having made it clear that Christ uh, gives life to the believers, Paul goes on to bring out some implications of what that life should look like in the next few verses. And his point really is quite simple. And his point is uh, that those who are Christ's should live as Christ's, And it is the Spirit that enables us to live as Christ. It isn't just okay that you, uh, those who are Christ should live as Christ. Come on, guys, do exactly as you should. It is that it's the Spirit that helps us to do that. So therefore, I want you to come to a conclusion today that there is a grave need, therefore, for us to receive the Spirit because uh, that's just the standard, isn't it? You have to nod with me. Okay, please nod, and, and so we'll move on. Okay, that's the... So we're going to look at first then the flesh and the spirit. Verse 12, so then. That's a linked statement. So 
since all this is true, you could say in verse 12. So all this is true. What is true? Well, what has gone before is true. So therefore, what Phil brought to you, so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So then, since that is true, how are you going to respond to such magnificent truths? How do you respond to, therefore, now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ? Well, the next few verses tell us. How do we do it? We do it as brothers. That's what it says in verse 12. We together brothers. And the use of that term is supposed to be so that we might understand that we do it in relationship together and we do it as friends together. As in rela- We're not going to do it on our own as stoic Christians doing our thing for God. But actually, we respond to these truths in family. That's the way, that's the idea of connect groups. That's the idea of Sunday. Let it never be a service. Let it always be the family of God coming together. It shouldn't ever be like that. Please get rid of your mind just for the sake of it. Services and meetings. This is not what Paul said. He said, so then, come on, there's some wonderful truths and we work it out as brothers. We're brothers. And then he says uh, that we are debtors. And some translation says that we have an obligation. And what we've been asked here is, what's our response to this overwhelming grace? (laughs) And uh, we're not in debt to the flesh, because if we ask ourselves this question, what has the flesh done for you? It ain't done much, has it? It's just screwed your head up and made you just a little bit more stranger than you were in the first place. That's what the flesh has done. It just doesn't help, does it? Joanna is nodding more than anybody else, which is a little bit disturbing. But, so she's a confessing, or perhaps she's the only honest one amongst us, that the flesh does, does, just does not do us any favours. And that leads us to ask the question, who therefore am I in debt to? And verse 13 tells us that we're in debt to the Spirit. I am indebted to a magnificent work of the Spirit in my life. It's the Spirit that sought me. It's the Spirit that got hold of me. It's the Spirit that pulled me back from the miry clay, placed my feet upon the rock. It's the work of the Spirit that saved me and brought me to this wonderful point of being saved through Jesus Christ. I'm indebted that the Spirit chased me, grabbed hold of me, got me by the scruff of the neck and dragged me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I'm indebted to a work of the Spirit. I think it's magnificent. You might just uh, clap occasionally, but there you go. Are you not indebted to the work? It's good stuff. Uh, Please speak to me. Thank you. Oh, just good. Just wondered whether you thought you might have been indebted to something else. No, you're not. You've been transformed by a work of the Spirit. So verse 13 Paul turns to the link between what he calls the fleshly life and death. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his famous commentary on Romans chapter 8, where he just sort of does one word at a time, he says this, he says that Paul is using a figure of speech 
because he believes the person that, he, that Paul is addressing here is saved. And he's writing to Roman believers who ultimately won't die. So what is he saying? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says this. This is a warning. Put your finger in that fire and you will get burnt. Isn't that true about the works of the flesh? How many of us know that reality? If I put my finger in that fleshly desire and that fleshly problem, it's almost as if all life just saps out of me, doesn't it? It sort of does... Joanna's still nodding, so it's just a bit worrying. But, But it does, doesn't it? When we get involved with the flesh, when we get involved in fleshly thinking and fleshly desires, it's almost as if spiritual life drains out of us. Do you not notice that? Yeah? That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and if he says it, it must be true. One commentator said this also. He said that if you live according to the flesh, it is to have your horizons set by the needs of the flesh, and as soon as you do that, you die. Meaning that you struggle to experience the life that comes from the Spirit. Why are, you, why are you maybe struggling with the life that comes with the Spirit? Sometimes it's because your horizon is a fleshly horizon. It's, and you can, you can know that because the flesh dulls our sensitivity to the Spirit. The Bible tells us it, it gives us a hard heart, not a soft and a gentle heart. And, and yet, so he says, and it can sort of, it almost kills us spiritually. And, it, and it's something that can happen. And what, what, what Paul's trying to say is this. Don't, don't let the flesh conquer your heart because it stops you receiving what the Spirit would want you to receive, which we will come to. The next question is to do with the doctrine of mortification. Let's talk about that. Mortification means killing the needs of the flesh. Nice. Now, Joanna is just helping me with this sermon because she's now poked Ralph, (laughs) which obviously must mean that when Ralph gets home, that Joanna's going to tell Ralph a little bit of what he needs to be mortifying in terms of his flesh. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall when you go out to that one? But... Where do I get mortification from? It's a reversing of Paul's statement. So if you put to death the needs of the flesh, you will live. That's the other way around of using that statement. So the consequence is that if I batter myself to death, therefore I will live. The trouble is that if it's the only thing that you do... um, it will lead to what I call a morbid self-sacrifice of of trying to achieve things in the wrong way and not by a way that is from the life of the Spirit. Everything you do is about no. Have you heard that? That's what my mum and dad said to me. As soon as I became a Christian, my mum and dad told me the rules. The rules are no, 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 and no. That's what they said to me. You can't go to the pictures, no. What did I do? Went to the pictures. Can't drink alcohol before you... you don't, 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 
It's a good job Dan's not here. You can't drink alcohol before you whatever. What do you do? You drink alcohol. Well, I just bought him under. I'm in so much trouble. But it's what you do, don't you? You, you sort of, and what, what the Christ, Christian life becomes, it becomes a rule. What happens is that you are holy because of what you don't do. And that's the way that you get it. So you deprive yourself of any sort of pleasure. This isn't wrong because what, what the Spirit wants us to do is, is captivate us so that we are so filled with Jesus so we look at those things and we go, no, I don't want to do those because of this. That's the way that it's supposed to work. You're not supposed to mortify yourself just on your own. It's debased and horrible. The... There's some dramatic things, though. I don't know if you've read some of these. I, I cut out the bad ones because I thought, at one point, I thought, well, no, there might be some children in this, so I cut it out. Because what happened in the past is that to make yourself more holy, you could scourge yourself. And you would do that before you sort of went into the presence of God. You know, I need to go into the presence of God. Let's give ourselves a good old whacking. You know, that was the way that it was. It made yourself more holy. How about this one? This was a church that decided that it would uh, make itself more holy before it met. And what it did is on the field before the church, it went and cut out brambles and thorns. And so on your way into church, you rolled through them so into the presence of God. Is it got a bit dizzy now, but I mean, that, you just think, what are we doing? The other one was that what you could do is to show how godly you were, you took off your shoes, and they didn't have socky sockies in those days, but you took off your shoes and you walked with bloodied feet on the way to church. And when you walked in and you walked into church, a sign of, of your godliness was the amount of blood that you left as you headed towards your chair. Another way to do it would be to not eat. <sighs> Students would have a problem. Or how about this one? That to show that you were godly, you would, in your community, of course, because it is a posture of reverence, you would walk on your knees. Now, I know that most people think that I walk on my knees most of the time because of my little legs, but that's what they would do. So they would go, ah, here comes Phil Smith. And you can tell that Phil Smith is godly today because, look, he's walking past me like on his knees as he goes past me, like an umpa-lumpa as he goes by. Would you like some specifics? Can you work this one out? Uh, A nun... Who, who said that if I touch my body, I, I lost my well up within me. So she, she decided for the rest of her life never to touch any part of her body with her own flesh. How do you do that one then? They're all going, how do you do that? I, I was worried about washing, but there you go. There's another one. There's a bishop for 40 years who refused to look at another woman's face. So 50% of the time, he's, he's just going around going, ah, oh no, blood middle, ah, oh no, what, a, I mean, what did he do? There was another one, Lawrence Justinian, who deprived himself of the pleasure of looking at the countryside. Isn't that stupid? <laughs> Get a life, man. This is going to make the Spirit of God... You know, what is that? How about this one? Another nun, Sarah. These are the good ones, by the way. 
You should, there's some great ones on the internet. Just some, but, but next time you go, next when you go home, do mortification of the saints, examples. That's some fantastic ones. Uh, another one, a nun called Sarah, for 40 years, thought that the fountain in, her, in the monastery would lead her to sin. So for 40 years, she wouldn't look at it. What is that? Look, let me repeat this. Let's go back to Phil. Therefore, now, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you, if you don't understand yet that the way that you deal with the flesh is by the Spirit, can I please help you with this one and release you from it? You will not deal with the flesh on its own. In Christ, it's been dealt with, and by the Spirit, it will be dealt with. You do it with, you don't do it on your own. You do it with this, and the product of being full of the Spirit is actually killed flesh. That's the way. The desire for those sort of things go. So we've had some fun. Let's move on. Being led by the Spirit. Isn't that the point of it all? That actually, who are we? What defines us? What shapes us? What, what moulds us? We are a people led by the Spirit. That's the way that it works. Verse 15. For all, uh, all, uh, sorry, uh, for all or because who are led by the Spirit. That don't make sense, but it's there in the Bible. Uh, some say that the word is uh, driven by the Spirit. And some people have argued because they've said it sounds like animals. But it does mean caught up, doesn't it? These, who, who are these people? These are people that are caught up in the Spirit. These are people that are moving on the wave of the Spirit. These are the people that are just caught up. And we're, we're moved by it. And I, I just don't feel that that's their experience, is it? Sometimes when the Spirit comes, we go, no, you can get off then. I mean, it's not like that, is it? This is, this is a people that the Spirit of God is leading them through their lives. It's a lovely expression. Paul's train of thought is to see that there is a consequence of being led by the Spirit and that we are so naturally indisposed to go to Jesus that it must be a work of the Spirit that that happens. So you can tell how these people are, are indisposed. They, they naturally are drawn towards Jesus. How does that happen? It's the Spirit in our lives. And it's a good question, isn't it? You know, who or what is leading me right now? Good question. Yeah? Quite simple, isn't it? Who or what is leading me? Well, who or what shapes me? Who or what directs me? What is, what is the thing that, 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 is, that, is, that is defining who I am right now? Is it the Spirit? And it's interesting that it's leading. So it means going forward. It means moving forward. So it's that sort of incline. And you can tell, how, how do I know if the Spirit is leading me? Because in my Christian life, I am moving forward. It isn't that I, you know, I became saved and sanctified all in one go and, you know, and that's it. No, come on. No, we are led by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit, actually, until we get to heaven, which we'll do it right at the very end. We're people led by the Spirit. So how do you know if you're not doing so good? Two things. One, one you're static. 
Secondly, you're going backwards. Okay? I've just gone quiet, so you've got time to deal with it. Galatians 5, chapter 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Here's the same thought again, the idea that the Spirit leads us away from legalism into truth. If the Spirit is on us, we resist legalism. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of what? Truth comes. What will he do? He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. See, it's the Spirit that guides us. It's the Spirit that leads us. We are not supposed to be left to our own intellect or wisdom, or even our own lack of intellect and wisdom. This church is not a management process. It isn't. It isn't that we take the world's ideas and we transport them because they are great ideas into the church. The church is countercultural because it is led by the Spirit. It's led by a supernatural person of the Trinity that guides us. And we shouldn't be led by the cleverest people in the church. We should be led by the ones who are most full of the Spirit. How do you choose a deacon? Talking about deacons. How did they choose Stephen? They chose a man full of the Spirit. They didn't say, oh, it's because he had done all the management courses that he gets. Sorry, Phil, you're never going to sit there again. He's, he, he didn't say, to, now, there's this man called Phil. He's, he's Phil Smith. He has done all the management courses. He knows exactly all these things that we can do. That will be great for us. I'm sure it would be great for us. But the definition of the church is that we are a people led by the Spirit. That's the way. There's a work of the Spirit that we experience, that we should experience, that leads us from flesh into life. So we should expect that we are shaped by prophetic words and revelation and what God is saying and a sense of this is a God moment. You know, so many times I was in a, just in a meeting. I don't know if you've heard this. Uh, I was in a meeting uh, just last week in Manchester, and what got stopped was the words, I think. Because we were having a conversation, and we were talking about um, uh, Christ central churches, and it went like this, well, I, I think. And the next person went, well, I think. And the next person went, well, I think. And then suddenly, the, a guy that I've known uh, for a very long time moved up to Teesside to take over John. And, he's a guy and, he said, and he said, guys, can we stop this for a moment? He said, because, you know, if, it, if it's about what I think, it's just about what, you know, your thoughts are better than my thoughts. And if you can persuade... And he said, we haven't asked God what God thinks. And it's true. That is the way that we can lead church. We can lead church on the way, the strength of what people think. We need to lead church on what the Spirit thinks. Now, sometimes that will be so countercultural, we will find that difficult. But it'd be the right way, because it's the Spirit that's leading us. So where does the Spirit lead us? It tells us, it says that these are the sons of God. And I love that expression. 
The ones who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Well, the sons of God are the ones who are led by the Spirit. You can interchange it. So, so sonship is understood by the fact that the people are led by the Spirit. A son is one who's led by the Spirit. A led by the Spirit one is a son. Now, as soon as you became Christians, you became sons of God. And sons are led by the Spirit. Do you know how to be more led by the Spirit? Understand your adoption. That is a crucial point. Understand who you are in Christ, what, what, where you are in Christ, what your position is. Because it is very key to understanding the work of the Spirit. The sons are led by the Spirit. The Spirit leads the sons. So important that we, we grasp the is, this issue. That so many of us are not led by the Spirit because we are still struggling with the fact that I am a son of God. We'll come to that in a minute. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. And because you are, you, because you are a son, God has sent his Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Isn't that wonderful? How, why did he send his spirit? Because you were a son. Do you see how the two are linked? They're, they're connected. Because you're a son, God sent his spirit. I send my spirit to my sons. It's, it's a, the work of the spirit is not an op, an, a sort of added extra. It's not an app to your phone, whatever, that you, whatever you've got. Well, I've got... I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this now with, the, with what I call... The, the, the iPhone pride stuff. Because you, you go on the phone and you can tell the pride of the iPhone user according to, in that little square box you've got, how many other little square boxes you've got. And they click on the, they click on the front of the iPhone and they go, <clears throat> and it's like lots of little dots. My Apps. I've got an app for breathing. The breathing app. It's, I click it and it goes in, out, in, out. And I paid 69p for that. Uh, and, you, and it's like this. And you think, now come on guys. The basic iPhone job, E, is this. The basic requirements is sons are filled with the Spirit. Basic. It's not an app. It's not a Christian app. It's not an extra. It's not something that those guys down the road do. No, the sons, they are led by the Spirit. That's its bottom line. It's a family feature. How do you know that they're sons? They are led by the Spirit. Okie dokie. The spirit of slavery and adoption. Verse 15, this is introduced with a four. And the reason being Paul is going to elaborate and deepen what he's just said. He speaks of receiving the spirit, meaning that you didn't receive the spirit. You did receive the spirit at the time that you were saved. And also you keep receiving the spirit. It isn't, okay, that, that was it, did that then. No, I need to receive the Spirit time and time again. The receiving of the Spirit is, is what a family member does. 
It's what a family member does. That's who. So what kind of spirit have you received? Now, we need to, we need to now want you to focus in because this point is very crucial in terms of the charismatic movement and where we are today in particularly our expressions and our feelings in terms of the work of the Spirit. Firstly, you did not receive a spirit of slavery. That is important to hear because there is a thought in today's mind uh, that any increase of the Spirit in our lives will lead me to emotionally being screwed up, vulnerable, and being asked to do things that I don't want to do. And that is quite common. It's common as to why people don't respond to the Spirit. It's common to why people move back, because they'll say to you, I I don't want to respond to this because I, I don't know what will happen. And that is a very common response to the work of the Spirit. I'm not going to do that. This is going to make me behave like I don't want to make me behave. It's going to make me say things I don't want to say. It's going to make me all peculiar and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's quite common for people to, to say that sort of stuff. They, they don't want a character or personality change. Hear this. The work of the Spirit does not bring you more bondage. It is impossible for the Spirit to bring you more bondage. The only person that's struggling with this is you, and what is at stake actually is that you are struggling with bondage and the Spirit is wanting to bring you into freedom. And, and that is something that I want you to see. I want you to see it for what it is that the devil is actually keeping you in bondage and saying that the work of the Spirit is bondage. Do you see how that? Because the devil makes truth lies and lies truth. How do I know this? Hear this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Hear that? A work of the Spirit does not put you back into slavery and fear. The work of the Spirit is wholly about your freedom. The Spirit does not make you feel like a slave and in bondage. It makes you feel like you are a son. And that is a very crucial point because sometimes you and I have made decisions, particularly in the area of the work of the Spirit, that has only been based on current bondage rather than freedom that Jesus wants to... We don't do it because... And, and you do it like this. You go, well, I don't know. <laughs> don't want to do all that shaking bit, you know. Don't want to do the lying on the floor. Might see me knickers. Something, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, you won't believe how many years that I've heard these things. You know, the reason that I don't do, you know, I don't do all this emotional stuff... Have you ever thought that Jesus actually wants to release you to the emotion? He wants to release you from bondage into freedom rather than what you're thinking. I'm not going to do that. That's going to put me into more bondage. It is impossible. The work of the Spirit takes you out of slavery, takes you away from fear. Hear that. If you have a problem, maybe you are listening to the devil too much. Giving him some earache, it would be good. You see, how do I know that? Because Paul's writing to the Romans. 
And what he's trying to say to them, he's trying to say to them, look guys, you can see what's going on in, the, in your, your environment so you can get an idea what the spirit of freedom and the spirit of slavery looks like. They would have understood the consequences of slavery. It would have, they would have seen it. They would have understood it. And he wants them to see how serious this is. And the train of thought is simply this, that Jesus has delivered you from bondage of sin, so why on earth would he want to lead you back into some sort of bondage? If he's delivered you from the bondage of sin, why is he going to, deliver, why is he going to place you back into bondage? And Paul's writing this because in the end he's, he's trying to explain to this to a people who actually are struggling because they, they are resisting the Spirit. I know people that have left churches because I don't want you to make me do something that I don't want to do. Well, I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to do, but I want you to do wholly what the Spirit wants you to do. I, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not interested in, you know, don't be interested in what I think you should do, but please be interested in what the Spirit wants you to do, because the Spirit wants to lead you into freedom and has got a work for you to do. <laughs> so here's a question Do I therefore resist the Spirit? How can you know that you are not free? Because Paul tells you, you will experience fear. (laughs) It says you fall back into fear. And the Romans would have known the fear. Being in Rome at that time was not a great joy. It was a fearful experience. And again, the Roman Christians could see slavery, bondage on a daily basis. They experienced immense fear. So how do you know? The answer is, fear comes upon you. And if fear is connected with the work of the Spirit, something is wrong. Something is wrong. We, when we first arrived in another church, <laughs> Kelly and I had a philosophy. And it went something like this, we do not minister to people in toilets. Because what used to happen in our meetings is that sometimes that God would begin to move and people would leg it. And isn't it really interesting that most people leg it into toilets? I always think that's really funny because you can't get out. Send the ministry team into the toilets with screwdrivers. We will get you. We're coming through. I mean, it's just amazing. So Kelly and I used to have this thing. We don't minister to people in toilets. We don't. But actually, such can the emotion be in your heart when the Spirit begins to move that it really does make you uneasy. I, I, I've known people that I have prayed for and they, they are rigid. You can pray, you know, they have plucked up enough courage. Okay, I'll come forward. But I'm, you're going to pray for me like this. <clears throat> and you think, I might as well go home. Pray for me, Okay. No, but let's, let me just say them. Hear this. This is Phil was prophesying about truth. He's saying, "Look, look, the Spirit 
about truth setting you free. Listen to this. 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear, perfect love casts out all fear. How can the Spirit, with his source of love, bring you fear? It is impossible. The Spirit can't bring you love and fear because he's not fear, he's holy love. If he's 100% love and he can't be fear, then the thing that you are feeling and experiencing is not from God and not what God wants you to experience. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears is not being perfected in love. The work of the Spirit delivers us from fear and it does not take us back again. On the contrary, uh, when you receive the Spirit, you receive a spirit of what? Adoption. It might be a little bit crazy, but adoption, the spirit of adoption, is what comes to you. This sentence is actually only used five times in the New Testament, three times in the book of Romans. And uh, before we move on from this, we're in the church in Rome. So probably, if you were a slave and you heard this truth, it would just blow you over. Because you know, if you are a slave, that you've either got to earn your freedom. Hear that? You've got to earn your freedom. You know that you will either die as a slave or slavery will kill you. And they get saved. Suddenly, somebody's saying to them, no, you are a son. Can you imagine if you're a slave, the impression that that has in your heart? Now some context. Shall we be controversial for a while? Let's have some fun. The Jews did not practice adoption. Some say Moses is an example, but that's an Egyptian family that he was adopted to. And I've used that as an illustration. I've actually preached a sermon on adoption here in this church. But Paul's taking the illustration from the people that he's writing to. And they understood slavery, and they also understood adoption because it was a Roman practice. The illustration is to them, so we have to use that illustration to our context. Yes, it's Roman slavery, Roman adoption, that's the key point. So how did it work? Firstly, that the practice was done by mainly the rich, powerful and influential. Only some did it. That's what you need to get hold of. Only some got it. They would have... And they would have seen and known people who were given the status of sonship. So, they would have looked on in wonder because what would have happened is that there would have gone little Lucius. We'll call him Lucius. And you would have known little Lucius because he was a vagabond and a ragamuffin and a pain in the neck and he was a a social problem. And suddenly, what happened to him was that he, through no reason of his own, became a part of the consul's family. And they would have watched this. They would have watched this guy. Sometimes an older man was taken in 
And the idea is they would have looked on that and they go, that's just beyond understanding. So the first thing is, only the few get it. That's what you're supposed to understand. The second thing is, what? I knew this guy when he was like this. I knew him. What on earth is going on? That's the point. So let's take that on a little bit further. Let's go back. The Spirit leads us out of bondage from sin into adoption. And as a wonderful result of that, we cry, Abba, Father. Actually, we all sing, Abba, Father. No, we don't. It's a cry. We will come back to the cry in a minute because people say it's an emotional, uh, heartfelt response cry. Okay, let's try and work this out from the beginning. Let's go in steps. So the first thing is that we've seen that it's, uh, it, it is rich and powerful. The second one is that we've seen it's a wonder. The third one is now we move on. The work of the Spirit doesn't give you a status of a son. Hear this, I cry, I'm a son! No, it cries, it causes you to cry, Abba Father. And to be honest, the church needs to address this. Because sometimes the cry of an understanding of sonship is, I'm a son. No, the cry of sonship is, I've got a father. The cry is, Abba Father. And it's emotional, and it's certainly heartfelt. So, shall we deal with the myths? This is going to be fun. I'm going to be in so much trouble, but I, amen, I'm running. Here's the first thing is, is this daddy or not? Is this daddy or not? It's what we go, I cry, daddy. Oh. Look. Answer me this question. What is the context? Please speak to me. What's the context? Rome, fantastic. Okay. What sort of family are we looking at? Did the Roman children call their fathers daddy? No. Fantastic. We're moving on. Are you all there? Just, you have to, are you alive? Okay. Right, it can't be daddy because the context is Roman family and the context of the head of the family was that the father was severe and he was imposing. How do I know that? Because he had the right to throw his son out on the street. He had the right to disown him. That was what the father was like. The father could say, you're my son, Andrew Harmon. You have behaved like this. I no longer have that. You are no longer my son. Go. Gone. There was a cheer then. From Abigail. Did you hear that? (laughs) Not only that, Andrew Harmon, but you could upset your father to such such a, a position in a Roman family that your father could take you out of the city, kill you, and leave you outside of the city, and he need not be taken to court because he is a Roman father, and a father has the right to kill his own son. This is called the pater familias. The pater familias. This is how he was known. And if you're in a Roman church, and if you're in Rome, you know these guys. And Paul wants you to know that point. I cry, Abba, Father. And the idea is, no, that cannot be true. 
And that's the first thing that he wants you to understand. He wants you to go, and I cry, Abba, Father. And the guys in Rome go, no, that cannot be true. The second point is this, next I cry, Abba, Father. The best rendering of this is the babbling of a little child when she sees or he sees something beyond understanding and he's overexcited and can't get their words out. Experience that one? Come on, parents. The kids get so... I won't do an example, Rachel, you're all right. But what happens is the kids get so excited that actually rubbish comes out their mouth. It's just utter words that they just, they're almost, have you not known that with your children? It's sort of like an imploding that comes out and you think, what on earth is going on inside of there? I won't do any illustrations, Rachel, but you know what I'm on about. So that's the first thing. That's the second thing. So when we, and the other one is that when we are talking about Abba Father, it is something of so intense intimacy and closeness and relational closeness that, is, it, that brings the idea of warmth, comfort, safety, security, and protection. And we're supposed to be left in a dilemma here. That's what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to create a dilemma in our minds. And he's saying the Spirit's work, the Spirit's work is to change our experience from this severe, imposing Peter Familias to Abba, Father. The Spirit's work is to cry, I am his son, no greater. He is now my father. And I am in, uh, I'm overwhelmed by this status that I cannot express my words back to my father in gratitude. That's the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit does all of this. It was an imposing father. Now it's Abba Father. I want to express what I feel, but I can't. That's the work of the Spirit. That's how it works. And that is what worship should look like. You know, sometimes we we have constructed sentences. That's not I cry. I don't know what I cry, but it's wonderful that you're my father. You know, sometimes we think we have to do 17 degrees and an MA so that we can get to pray. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you catch it. I no longer have an imposing father. I have one now that brings security and comfort and love and protection. I don't have this anymore. I have a father and it comes out as a mess. It's supposed to come out as a mess. It just is. It does not matter. And it doesn't matter that the deacons visit you and say, that was not theologically correct when you said that. And you go, no, I don't care because it's my Abba Father. It's something that wells up within me. How can you know it's the Spirit? Because you can't say what you want to say. That's the work of the Spirit, isn't it? Do you ever do that when you get a pray? You go, rats, I must have sounded like an utter idiot. That's the point. You go, hallelujah, I sounded like an utter idiot. Take encouragement. Last point. How long have we got? Oh yeah, we'll do this quick. Verse 16. Continues to say that the Spirit himself bears witness, unaided, 
See this? Unaided, the Spirit himself bears witness. Unaided, you cannot testify to the Abba Father. Unaided. You, you can't do worship without the Spirit. You'll just sit down. Hear this. We need the Spirit because it causes us to testify. That's the point. It bears witness with ours. Unaided, we cannot worship. Aided, we can be lost in wonder, love and praise. That's the point. We cannot do it. On our own, we will either underqualify ourselves or overqualify ourselves. That's the work of the flesh. It's a work of the spirit. So what have I written here? It's an inner thing. It's an assurance that God is our Father. We are his Son. And do you know what? That's all that matters. What matters to you? What matters? This is what, God, this is what Paul's writing. He's writing to Rome, folks. He's writing to the hostility of Rome. And he's saying, you know, what, what really matters? What, what is on my important list? You can always tell what's on somebody's importance because it's the thing that they've done. And here's what Paul says. Look, no, this is the thing that matters. The Spirit bears witness with him that, that, he, that, we, that he's our Father. We are so, that's all that matters. We'll come back to that. Why have I added that? Well, just wait for a bit because we are not just children. We're heirs. It's that word of property that you know, comes when somebody's died. Inheritance. You know, the Old Testament picture. You inherit a land. You inherit the promises. You inherit a Messiah. Paul talks in that sort of thing. You, you, you are heirs, isn't it? Don't you think it's just absolutely balmy that you are called co-heirs with Christ? <laughs> You're not here, folks. This is the status thing, the dignity thing. We are so privileged we, we, we are co-heirs with Christ. We have equal status to the third person of the Trinity. Do you get the... Oh, come on. <laughs> we, have, we have been given through one act of, of magnificence on a cross. We, have been, we are now co-heirs with Christ. Amazing. We... The Spirit doesn't want us to feel undervalued and he doesn't want us to feel proud and arrogant. But he does want us to feel who we are. You know, you, we, will never, we will never build the church to what God has called us unless we actually understand one of these great privileges. I can't, do you ever get this? Stuff? I can't do that. I can't, I can't, I can't do evangelism. No, no, no. Come on, no. Just go, What? You're a co-heir with Christ. Of course you can do it. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. You're a co-heir with him. You should walk out there thinking, I'm a co-heir with Christ. I, I am. I, I have been given the status equal to the third person of the Trinity. I don't understand it. It's beyond me. But that's supposed to be a, a way. Can you imagine that in Rome? 
Place that in Rome with these, these grand eagles flashing by, this magnificent red and gold everywhere, these incredible temples and these magnificent armies. And, and, and here's these poor people meeting somewhere in a cellar somewhere, worshipping God. And, and, and Paul says to them, you know, guys, you see those Romes? You see them with all their emperors? You see them with all their olive leaves and all that sort of stuff? Ha, ha, you, you're co-heirs with Christ. Jest. That's what you're supposed to feel. You have dignity. Let's feel with this. Why did I say that's all that matters? Why did I make a point of it? Verse 17. Because the context is found in this. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified in him. Or indeed, if we share in our sufferings. That's the last verse. Neither Paul nor Jesus tells us that the believer's path is easy. He says this. Jesus will suffer you will suffer. Paul would suffer. By the way, suffering is not a diverse, sort of peculiar discipleship course, by the way. It's what sort of suffering for the Lord. Come on. But suffering and injustice is what, what you will live with. Let's clear this up just once and for all. What is your lot in life? Injustice, suffer. We're going to have a ministry time in a minute. All those that would like more injustice and more suffering, please come forward. Why, why am I saying that? Because it's in a lifetime of suffering injustice that you need the work of the Spirit to confirm to you that God is your Father and you are his child and you are his an heir. That's the point. That's the point. You will suffer. You will suffer physically, emotionally. You will be dealt injustice. But the overcoming thing for this is that God is my Father, I am His Son, and I'm a co heir with Christ. It's in suffering that we know also that we'll be glorified with Him. I'll, do, I'll read this with through. Because I want you to know that sometimes what we do think is that we think this. Okay, I I need to get something back in this world. Hear this? You won't. (laughs) If it's been unfair today, it's going to be more unfair tomorrow. It's a sinful world, you're sinful, and it's it's the way that it is. So not only do we need to know the Spirit, see the Spirit, Spirit comes and He helps us during our suffering and injustice. And he doesn't say, I'm going to take the suffering away from you and take the injustice away from you, Ralph. He just says, no, I'm going to fill you with his spirit so that you know that you have a father, that you are a co-heir, and that you are a son. Now, God thinks that's that's adequate for you. He thinks that's enough for you. He's right. He's right. He's absolutely right. The other thing that is right is, is that what is important really is not now. It's what happens ahead. And sometimes what we want is that we want suffering and injustice to be dealt with now. We want freedom now. No, freedom comes in heaven, by the way. So it says this, we share in, it says, notice we're glorified with him. See, what, what will happen? What happens when God glorifies a human being? Well, we glorified with him. God glorifies his children. 
He does something that he, that he, that he has done to Jesus. He exalts them. <laughs> Above all rule and authority. Do you know that will happen to you one day? One day, you will be exalted. This time, you may have to be humble. One day, you will be... It's what it says in 1 Peter, by the way. You will be exalted. There is an exaltation for you to come. That should be the thing that you say, I can live with this. Secondly, you will receive a glorious body. Don't you love that? The creation itself will be free from bondage to decay to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What do the children of God get? What do we await for? What do we, what do, do we await the adoption? What do the people, the adoption of sons wait for? The redemption of our bodies. Come on. Not only will I be exalted one day, I will be glorified and get a glorious body. And Paul says to you, come on, these are the things that will, put, that will help you through this world if you will grasp it. It's what the Spirit does. The Spirit comes upon you it glor- it w- and it affects you and it says, I will be exalted. It comes back, I will get a new body. It brings you this perspective and it tells you also, that it, what sort of body it will be. It will be raised imperishable. It's in dishonour now, but it will be raised in glory. No more pain, no more frustration. It also tells you that it will be a holy body, that you will have inward beauty. I think the work of the Spirit is so important in our day. I, I fear that we are charismatic in name and not in life. I feel that the, the church is at a crucial point in its history that actually that the Spirit of God is something that we honour in name only and not in reality. And I want to appeal to us today to be a church who is led by the Spirit. And that includes in all things, in our worship, in the way that we go, in our lives as individuals, in some of these realities... The Spirit leads you, not out of your suffering, but leads you to a greater perspective. Is there any more time than this time to be filled with the Spirit? I don't think so. And yet it is still argued amongst many people as something that is just dismissed, really. So I want to encourage you. Here's the thing that I'm going to do. I'm not going to do a ministry time. You'd expect that now. Please come forward if you want to be so. I'm not going to do it. I refuse to do it. But what I'd like you to do is, Phil, if you guys could come back, is that I would like you to go, I, I'd like you to settle something in your heart, and that is this, that I'm in need of, the, of a work of the Spirit in my life. Would you settle that with me? Would you like to stand?